famous violinist, as you know. He's certainly a worthy heir. Very appropriate song to lead in today and very appropriate prayer prayed by Brian today because every time we meet, it's for one purpose and it's to see reflected in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ the light of the knowledge of the glory of God shines into our hearts and as we go into this world of which we are not a part, we radiate that glory to all. Our messages lately have been hovering around a very important prophetic word that's realized in Jesus Christ, that being Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, the longest quote of the Old Testament in the New, found in Hebrews 8, 8b through 12, and so we are hovering around that passage now, and we probably will get to it sometime today. I have much to say, and we are living in a very, very critical time, and I'm more and more aware of that. And as Brian prayed, the battle is on, the armor must be put on and kept on at every moment, and there's nothing more important. We are fellow citizens of a heavenly city-state, which I call Uranopolis, which is simply a combination of two Greek words, Uranos for heaven, polis for city, Uranopolis. Now, that's going to be the subject today. Also, I want to emphasize with regard to the New Covenant community, which we are, the important command, we are not here to change the world, but to be the church. We are not here to change the world, but to be the church in the world. And in doing so, we hold forth the word of life to those in spiritual death and have more effect and impact on the world than we could ever have by trying to change the world. We, we are the church. We are the New Covenant com community. We are a people in Christ Jesus. We are a people under the direction, hopefully, of the Lord, the Spirit, inasmuch as we are under his immediate and intimate direction, we are that church in practice. We are that church in reality. We are that church, that covenant community in manifestation and in every way. Pastor Messick also mentioned to put on the full armor from God, mentioned that in his prayer. The most popular style of helmet in Paul's day for the Roman legionnaires, and he was very familiar with those helmets because he was under guard of Praetorian guard for a lot of the years of his ministry. The most popular style of helmet for the Roman legionnaires at that time was the Gallic helmet, and it was noted for its protection of the back of the head and neck while it leaves the ears free and open so that the legionnaires could hear the orders of their centurion during battle. And that's very appropriate to us 
because we are to put on the helmet of salvation as Ephesians 6.17 says. 1 Thessalonians 5.8 calls it the helmet of the hope of salvation. There's a reason for that, why that distinction. And it's taken from a passage in Isaiah 59.17, Jesus Christ the rescuer who comes to turn away ungodliness or impiety from Zion and from Jacob comes with a helmet of salvation. He wears a helmet of salvation because he's the bringer of that salvation. Hebrews 9.28 says we wait for him because he's going to bring salvation to a waiting creation and to all of humanity in all of its times and bring redemption to history. Jesus wears a helmet of salvation in Isaiah 59.17 through 21. As he brings salvation, we wear the helmet of salvation as recipients of salvation and as those who work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Why fear and trembling? Because it's God in us, both willing and doing, of his own savingly pleasing purpose. God is in us, both willing and doing, and that means he's in us, both willing and doing our salvation in time, in this time that I'm calling the time in between the two great alterations. Nothing could be more important for us to recognize than that we are between two great eschatological alterations, the first being the alteration of the human situation and the universal situation, which happened in 2 Corinthians 5.19 when God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. The alteration of our situation is therefore behind us, and we are in between that and the alteration of the human and creational condition, which is going to happen in the parousia, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the universal apocalypse of Jesus Christ, when he brings salvation to a waiting creation and universal liberation of that creation from its present slavery to entropy. And so as we gather, we are gathered here as a phalanx, and our helmet protects our mind as the breastplate protects our heart. And as our mind is protected with the helmet of salvation, our ears are open to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. We are also open to hear what the centurion says to each assembly. Each assembly has in effect, or a phalanx and a centurion, a pastor who teaches. And inasmuch as the pastor is under the direction of the Holy Spirit, then the phalanx will be in rank, in order, and present a main line of resistance to the invisible enemies and a forward line of troops for God's purpose in this world. And so a hearing ear and the seeing eye are both left open under the helmet of salvation. And the hearing ear and the seeing eye are both from God. Our battle is not with flesh and blood, but with invisible adversaries, with spirits of evil under the control of the prince of airborne spirits, as he's called in Ephesians 2.2. More active today than ever before in history is this prince of the power of airborne spirits 
who control social media, who control so-called news media, who control the propaganda that is circulating in the atmosphere around this earth. And you are, if you think the battle is political, you're distracted. If you think it's a matter of Democrat versus Republican, you're distracted. If you think it's a matter of who's in the White House or who isn't, you are distracted. You are not in the battle. You are distracted. If your main view for your eyes is TikTok instead of Bible doctrine, you're distracted. And there's a kind of ignorance that brings shame with it. The ignorance of the word of God and the times in which we're living is ignorance that com com comes with shame. And it's a shame that we should feel until we repent and get together with the Lord and with his purpose. The helmet of salvation is the one I'd like to focus on now. And that's, we have the helmet of salvation because we are the recipients of salvation. We have the helmet of salvation because we are currently being saved. Inasmuch as we receive the implanted word which is able to save our souls. This is a year and the times ahead of us are times in which you are going to see Christians perishing because they're not receiving the implanted word which is enabled to save the soul. Because they do not know the word of the cross, they're not exercised to know the difference between good and evil. They call good evil, they call evil good, because they don't have the standard in their soul by which good and evil are measured and discerned. Their senses have not been trained in the battle training ground to discern good from evil, as Hebrews 5, 13 to 14 says, they are not skilled in the word of righteousness, and therefore they are not even in the battle. They're not in rank, they're not in line, and it's hard to take seriously people who don't take the word of God seriously, which is why God disregarded the people that he led up out of the land of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land. In the time in between, he disregarded a few of them who perished in the in-between no man's land. You will see the perishing. I see it all the time. The perishing of Christians and non-Christians alike. True revival doesn't come because people gather together and don't stop praying for three weeks. True revival happens when people get down to listening and applying the word of God in the power of the Holy Spirit in the trenches of living consistently, consistently, consistently. They're not caught up in the drama of family life or in the dramas of gossip or maligning or whatever else is going on. They're caught up in the doctrine of the word of God. They're learning the word, and it's the implanted word that saves the soul. And that's how we work out our own salvation in this time in between the two great alterations. The alteration of our situation, which has placed us in Christ. The alteration of our condition, which we expect when our deliverer comes from our heavenly city-state to change these bodies of our current humiliation and make them conformable to his own body of glory, something he does, incidentally, by the same power that he exerts when he subjects everything to himself, everything under his feet. Another allusion to Psalm 110, 1. 
Sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footrest for your feet, says the Father to the Son. And there are 19 at least notable allusions of that verse in the New Testament, really more when you count the allusions. Five of the 19 notable ones are found right in our epistle, right in the homily called Hebrews, a homily sent from heaven for such a time as this. We have the helmet of salvation presently because we are recipients of that salvation. It is also called in 1 Thessalonians 5.8 differently, the helmet of the hope of salvation. We have the helmet of salvation because we have salvation because of the change of our situation in Christ. We are reconciled. We have been justified. We are being sanctified. We have salvation. But we have helmet of the hope of salvation because we are expecting at the same time the change of condition that comes with the resurrection of our bodies and with the liberation of all of creation from its present slavery to corruption. We are in between these two great radical eschatological alterations. And in between there is battle, in between there is conflict, in between there is an arena of contention. It will not stop. It will not let up. It will only escalate as lords are competing for the dominion over people's souls. If you've been a Christian for more than five years and you can't relate to a single verse in every book of the 66 books of the Bible, a standout verse from all 66 books, you're distracted. You've got something else going on more important than being a soldier of Jesus Christ. You're not in rank. You're AWOL. You're absent without authorized leave. And I can't emphasize this enough because you will see, and I don't want you to see it only and experience perishing. For without a vision, the people perish. A vision is put together through the word of God and through all of the words that we've been studying and completing in our study of the word of God. It comes together in an interior vision. And it's a vision by which we walk by faith and not by sight in this time in between. In this time in between, we walk by faith and not by sight. Walk by sight. And perish. Walk by faith and experience the being saved in time. Ignore the word of the cross and perish. Consider the word of the cross and glory in nothing but our Lord and Savior's cross and be saved in the being saved. So don't take universal salvation in such a way that you don't listen to the warnings of perishing in the time in between. Because there is a perishing in the time in between. My people perish, says God. My people perish, says God in Hosea 4.6, for lack of knowledge. Oh, they may know everything to know that's come through social media. They know nothing of the scriptures. The attention drawn to the scriptures has been drawn away to other things. 
You could ask. I don't do it because I don't embarrass people. I could ask certain Christians I know that have been Christians for years. I could ask them basic questions that I know they can't answer, and I won't ask them because I know I will be embarrassed by their ignorance. And so I'm speaking today as a centurion in battle, so I'm not couching my language with niceties, and will I apologize? No. He's going to say, hell no, but hell has lost its power. As Philippians 3.20 says, we await from heaven a Savior who will change the bodies of our temporary humiliation and make them like his own body of glory. This time in between these two great events of salvation is a time, again, when we work out our own salvation. You say, how do we figure in this? We, with teachability and meekness and courtesy, receive the implanted, engrafted word, and we keep doing it. We don't just do it Sundays, or we don't just do it Wednesdays. We do it on a daily basis if we're worth our salt. And when the salt loses its savior, savor, you can't lose your savior. Savior, but you can lose your savor. When the salt loses its savor, it's worthless, it's useless. There isn't enough of it in a nation like the United States of America to prevent disaster, to, to prevent the destruction of an electrical grid, to prevent atomic warfare, to prevent conquest by belligerent powers that are circling us now like vultures over carrion. This cannot be prevented except by a people under the direct and immediate direction of the Holy Spirit, the Lord the Spirit, not Baal the Spirit, not Ishtar the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Lord the Spirit, the Spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ in Philippians 1.19, the Spirit of Jesus in Acts 16, 7 through 9. The spirit of Christ that dwells in you that raised Jesus from the dead and will quicken our mortal bodies when he returns. And he doesn't return to rapture out a few lucky lottery winners. He comes to restore all things and to renew the earth and to allow all things to be summed up in him. That's the alteration that's coming. That's the alteration that's on its way. That's the hope of our salvation. It's not just the hope that I'll be saved and resurrected. It's the hope, the expectation that when he comes, he brings salvation to a waiting creation, to a creation that doesn't even know it's waiting, but intensely groaning. To the dead, to the living. And that's why Paul said, in the light of the coming of Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead, preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season, when it's received and when it's not received. And a pastor has to be ready to take the lead. He has to be ready to let the church be under a theocratic, not a democratic government. He has to be ready to make decisions, executive decisions. He has to know where he's going with the word of God and teach it. He has to have a vision of the scriptures all of them together. He has to know what the Holy Spirit wants him to teach, when to teach it, and to preach it without favor, without favoritism, without bias, and without anyone's face in his face that he favors over anyone else. 
I'm saying today that we don't change the world and we don't try to change the world. We just be the church. The word that I preach isn't just to have you think differently about things. It's to have you be different. Be different than you were before in your age of rebellion and ignorance and the stupidity of the old man. Be different from the old man. Be different from the old world. Be different from the old covenant community whom God disregarded in the time in between their deliverance from Egypt and their entry into the land. Many perished. In fact, the majority perished, as Jude 1.5 tells us. The majority perished. These are written for us upon whom the end of the ages have come. These instructions about this wilderness generation. In 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 12, that tells the story. And if anyone thinks he stands, let him take heed lest he falls. The Bible is a message against self-confidence in Adam. The Bible is against self-trusting. The Bible is against self-reliance. The Bible is against the message that God helps them that helps themselves. The Bible is a message of God helping the helpless. And the Lord is our helper. And because he is and he will never forsake us, then what shall man do to us? Why should we fear what man can do to us? The most man can do to us is kill our body and deliver our soul into the presence of our Savior. And it's coming to that. And if you don't think it's coming to that, you haven't been listening to what the Spirit is saying to the church. You've been listening to what the Chinese Communist Party says through TikTok and entertains through social media. And I say this not because I'm a fundy preacher, not because I'm holier than thou, and believe me, I'm not, and I know it. I know my sinfulness, I know my Failures, I know my flaws, I know my faults, and I know them better than probably any of you know your own. God chooses men to speak the word that are sinners and know it. God chooses people that speak the word that have been before him and come undone in his presence. And have asked him to leave. Please don't draw near to me because I'm a sinful man. That's the experience we have before we are called into the ministry. We realize that we are people of unclean lips. Our mouth is unclean. We speak unclean things. We speak obscenities. We speak things that are suggestive. We speak things that are heresy. We speak lies. Our mouth, our sins of the tongue, are what keep us absolutely identified with the world and its perishing. If anything separates saints from this world, it's their speech. It's the speech that we have from our lips. And it's not until the Lord takes an, an angel, a seraphim from the throne, takes a tongue and removes a coal from the fire of the altar before the throne of God and touches the lips of the servant of God that he's even able to speak a sentence to the people of God. And so I take this business pretty seriously. And I take my job as a pastor teacher pretty seriously. And I take it as seriously as any centurion did leading any phalanx into battle, life and death battle. Because the life and death for us is the being saved in this time in between or the perishing in this time in between. And if you take that lightly, you've taken me wrong. If you take it seriously, you've taken me right. 
If you're taking it with a little bit of fear and trembling, then you know that God is in our midst today. The reason we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling is because it is God who is in us. God who is among us. And we don't have to feel his presence. We recognize and acknowledge his presence. And he's a transformative God. He transforms us. And he conforms us into the image of his son. That's what's important. And we've got to get together with what's important in our souls. Our values have to be directed toward what's most important. There are going to be people perishing under the pressure of coming situations. There are also going to be those who are being saved in those situations. And it all boils down to how you have taken seriously the word of God consistently. I say that to you if you're young. I say that to you if you're middle-aged. I say that to you if you're older and one of the elder statesmen of our ministry, and there are many of you. Don't try to change the world. Just be the church. But what is the church? It's the new covenant community, citizens of heaven, of the heavenly Jerusalem, which is also called the above Jerusalem in Galatians 4.26, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven in Revelation 3.12. It is, as Paul put it in 3.20 of Philippians, again, our citizenship, polituma, our citizenship is in heaven. The present tense is used there in that sentence. Our citizenship exists presently in heaven. And we're going to see in Hebrews that there is a a tremendous and phenomenal connection between what is heavenly and what is interior in our soul, in our being. God had to cleanse the heavens with better sacrifices than the animal sacrifices. And what does it mean to cleanse the heavens? It's similar to cleansing our conscience, the interiority of our soul the fourth level of human consciousness where we live, where we are imitators of God. The Sermon on the Mount is a call to be an imitator of God and to be perfect as our Heavenly Father in heaven is perfect, perfect in love, perfected in love. It's not supposed to be sensible. It's not supposed to be humanly reasonable what Jesus Christ asks us to do. It's supposed to be beyond anything humanly sensible and humanly intuitive. It's to be an imitator of God, which only God in us can do in us. So we are the church. We are the body of Christ. We aren't here to change the world but to be the church. If we would only be the church, the world might change. History might enter into an uptrend. There may be a renaissance in history, a restoration that saves this nation, that saves other nations, that saves a generation that rescues a civilization. Even though we are not part of the culture, not part of the civilization, not part of the history of this world. Our history is in Jesus Christ. Want to know my history? I was crucified with Christ. I died. My life is hid with Christ in God. Want to know my history? I was raised together with him. Want to know my history? I was raised up and seated in heavenly places together with him. 
That's my history. Your history as the church is that history. It's the history of Jesus Christ. Your destiny is the destiny of Jesus Christ. His destiny is your destiny. To not know that is to perish. To know that is to be being saved in this time in between. There's no question of salvation that happened in the alteration of our situation at the cross. There's no question of our ultimate salvation when the Lord returns to change the bodily condition of our human bodies and to liberate the creation. There's no question of salvation in the change of situation and in the change of condition. There is a question of salvation in the time in between. Will you be of the being saved or will you be of the perishing, believer or not? Believer or not. Now, believe it or not, I'm like a bird flying. I will light on our passage. And I will mention in Deuteronomy 6.12, Moses, speaking to the people of Israel, said, Be concerned for yourself not to forget. Be concerned for yourself not to forget, he said. The Lord your God. Be concerned for yourself. Why? Because perishing and being saved in this time in between, and for Moses and the people of that time, it was the time in between their rescue from Egypt and their entry into the promised land. In between, the majority of them perished. You say, You shouldn't talk that way. Yes, I should. And maybe I haven't enough. If you read 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 13, you will recognize that all of these things were written in their time in which the majority who were saved perished, written for us, warning, admonition, pounding sense into our heads in the times that have come to us. What's come to us? The end of the ages has come to us, the end of the ages. The end of one age ended at the cross, and the beginning of another age ended, began at the cross. There are two termini. A termini has an end which is a beginning and an end which is an end. At the cross are the termini of, a, of the ages, plural in Hebrews 9.26. In the cross, there was the termini or the terminus of one age, the old age. At the cross was the terminus, the beginning of another age, the messianic age, which is endless. At the junction of those two ages, Jesus Christ offered himself to put away sin once and for all. And he who bore the sin of many in the first alteration will come again bringing salvation to awaiting creation, Hebrews 9:28. Deuteronomy 6.12 again, be concerned for yourself not to forget the Lord your God who brought you out. Ex ago, we looked at that word last week. Ex ago, a word for exodus. He brought you out, brought you out of the land of Egypt. And then he adds this very importantly for you and me. Out of the land of Egypt, out of a house of slavery out of a house of slavery. He led you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. 
Paul picked up this theme and made it spiritual and made it a spiritual theme for every individual and for the New Covenant community in Romans chapter 8. Maybe you forgot it. I didn't. This is my translation of it from reading Romans with the light on. Romans 8.15. For you see, you did not receive a spirit of slavery again, meaning you had one before. You didn't receive a spirit of slavery again, like enslaved Israel in Egypt is what Paul's talking about in context, leading to slavish fear, slavish fear, like the enslaved Israelites who feared the wrath of Pharaoh. Moses didn't. He didn't fear Pharaoh's wrath. By faith, he left Egypt and all the pleasures that would be his as one who was adored and adulated and worshipped as a celebrity. He won the contest called Egyptian Idol, but he forsook it all, nor did he fear the wrath of Pharaoh. And so, you have not received a spirit of slavery again to fear. On the contrary, Paul says, you received the spirit of adoption. That's something that's fully realized in the parousia in bodily resurrection. And it's a privilege accorded to the people of Israel. By whom we cry out to God the Father, Abba, as our Father. The Spirit testifies with our spirit, Paul goes on in Romans 8, 16, that we are the children of God. And since we are children, we are also heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, who is the heir of all things, of course, in Hebrews 1, 2. Seeing that we are suffering in order to... Be glorified with him. We are suffering in order to be glorified with him. And we have to ask ourselves sometimes, why are we suffering? Well, I'm suffering because I made that bad decision, that bad decision, that bad decision. Got caught up with that crowd. Got caught up with that crowd of drug heads and dope heads. And so I'm suffering because of that. Oh, yeah, you are. But that's not the sufferings that yield to glory that follows. The sufferings that we're enduring now are the sufferings that belong to people who are in Christ and progressing in the agona. Some of you haven't even suffered that yet. And some of you have. But perhaps none of us has yet suffered under the shedding of blood yet in Hebrews 12.4 like someone we know has. Our Lord Jesus Christ. And countless martyrs that are dying today on a bloody altar of martyrdom and have throughout history. Verse 18, Paul said this, I'm banking on the fact that the sufferings of the present time of crisis, the sufferings of this present time of crisis, the sufferings of this present time in between, which is a time of crisis. I don't look for a crisis to happen. I realize that we are in a crisis, an endless crisis crisis that only ends at the parousia, the coming of Christ. Every decision to me is a crisis decision to choose the word of God, the word of life, the word of the cross, the word of righteousness, the ministry of life, the ministry of the spirit, the operation of the spirit, rather than 
kowtowing to the flesh, kowtowing to belligerence and the bullies and the tyranny of our time, a time in which the weak are bullying the strong, as well as the weak intimidating, being intimidated by the strong who have power. In God's eyes, political power is no power. Tyranny is power on the way to total destruction. Don't fear it. Once you stop fearing death, you sure stop fearing the people that deal in death. I'm banking on the fact that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy of comparison with the glory that is about to be revealed to you and to me and in us. The word N, E-N, has 36 meanings, and I think we can apply both, at least two of them, the glory that will be revealed to us and the glory that will be revealed in us is impending now. The sufferings of this present time of crisis aren't even worthy to be compared in the slightest to the glory that's about to be revealed. Revealed all the more for fighters in the Agona, not deserters from it. Then he says this, For the creation eagerly awaits the apocalypse of the sons of God. The creation, all created reality, that's, we call it the universe, is awaiting The apocalypse of the sons of God. That's the revelation in glory of glorified Israel, which is the people of God. For the creation in its totality was subject to futility, said Paul. Again, going on in verse 20 of Romans 8. Not willingly, but through the one who subjected it with the expectation. You say, how can God make something with an expectation? How can God, who is everywhere present and who inhabits eternity, have an expectation? Because for us to understand in the language of accommodation that God actually has hope, we have to understand that God has hope. But his hope is a certain determination. And so if we're at all aligned with God and in any way in having the mind of Christ, our hope isn't a maybe prospect, a hope so wish to be, wishful thinking, but it is a confident expectation that aligns to God's determined resolution. And so God has a hope. But his hope is simply a figure of speech for his determined resolution, listen, that the whole of creation will be liberated from its slavery to corruption. Physicists like to use the word entropy, the tendency of the universe toward death, toward absolute zero, toward dying. And there is that. You can detect an entropy in the world. Paul called it its slavery to corruption. And the whole universe is slated to be liberated from that slavery to corruption. God is going to reverse the tendency in the universe toward death. Why? Because the Lamb of God took away the sin of the cosmos, which is its tendency toward death. For the wages of sin is death in all creation. 
But the gift of God is eternal life for all creation through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, how can I blend? It's only knowing the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ and the universally redemptive and reconciling impact of the cross of Christ that makes me speak boldly on the time in between. Only having that assurance makes me bold, makes me bold to speak in the time in between that there is this danger of perishing in our emotions, perishing in our psychological failure, perishing in time, in this time in between, like Israel delivered from slavery, from a house of slavery, dying before it got to the land of promise. Dying between the house of slavery and the land of promise. And if a lot of Christians were honest, they would admit even today that they are perishing and not being saved. To those of us that are being saved, the word of the cross is salvation. Christ is salvation. To those of us that are perishing, it's so much foolishness. And that's just so much holy talk and God talk. And that's for you, not for me. Yeah, okay, so being saved is for me. Perishing is for you. The word of God is being proclaimed not just so that we will think differently about things. It is proclaimed so that we will be different by being like Christ in a graced imitation of the one who walked in love and gave himself as a fragrant aroma to God, as a slaughtered lamb sacrifice, pleasing to God. And so, verse 22 of Romans 8, we know that all of creation in all of its times laments and suffers the agony of birth pangs even until now. Don't confuse perishing with birth pangs. You might say, I'm perishing by your definition. No, you're experiencing birth pangs. That's a good thing. For we know that all the creation in all of its times laments and suffers the agony of birth pangs even till now. But not only is that so, on top of that, we, those of us who have the first fruits of the Spirit, that's the proleptic new creation, the new covenant community, we sigh deeply in ourselves don't mistake that for perishing. We sigh deeply in ourselves. We eagerly await the enjoyment of the full privileges of our sonship, that it is the redemption of our bodies, their inevitable ransom from slavery to corruption. Don't mistake that groaning anticipation for your liberation as perishing. That's part of the being saved. That's part of the hope of salvation. That's part of the helmet that protects your mind while the ears are still open to hear the shouts of your centurion, to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches through his servants. Oh, there's the rub. Through his servants. I don't have to listen to him. I know things about him. I know. I've seen him swear in traffic. I know he's a sinner. Wow, big revelation. But God uses people that are tuned to the Holy Spirit 
and he uses them to communicate his very thinking to churches and phalanxes. The stars in the right hand of Jesus Christ are the messengers, not angels, messengers, human messengers of the seven churches in the book of Revelation, which are representative of all local assemblies like this one that are elements of the new covenant community, the church, which is Christ's body. We aren't here to change the world. We're here to be the church. You want instructions to be the church? Reread 2 Corinthians 3, 4, 5, 6, for example. And we are blending that in with our study. You say, what about notes for this message today? <laughs> I have no idea. But I will say this. I'll make it very simple. We live in a time between two alterations. I'm going to explain to you what those are a little more clearly. In this time in between these two alterations, there's only one way to live, and it's to live by faith, to walk by faith, not by sight. Why? Because sight can't see the change of situation that happened in 2 Corinthians 5.19 when God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Sight can't see that. Sight sees the world all messed up. Sight sees people all screwed up. Sight and science and technology which we're going to lose very soon, by the way. You know what? God's going to bring a situation where it's you and God and no technology, no phone, no smartphone. You'll have to be smart. You'll have to have the thinking of Jesus Christ, the mind of Christ. When God took the stony heart out of you and I and put in a heart of flesh, what heart do you think he put in us? The heart of the flesh of the Son of Man. He put Jesus Christ's own heart in you. And he put his mind in you. I will write my laws on their minds, but we have the mind of Christ upon which those laws were written. The more you take in the word of God with serious intent, and mix faith with the message, the more you will have in you the mind and the thinking of Christ, and the more you will not only survive, but thrive, not only cope, but seriously cope and overcome in a time when all technology and machinery is removed from your hands and your periphery, and it's just you and God in the arena with an invisible superhuman enemy. And you win. Because greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. You, without technology will resist the devil and he will flee from you. Why? Because you will say from the interiority of your soul through the external aperture of your mouth into this conflict, it stands written. As Jesus did three times in his wilderness trial. Now, In this time, in between these two great alterations, we walk by faith and not by sight. We're always confident, as we said before. Why are we always confident? Because we know at the end of this life, 
when our tent is dismantled and destroyed, we have an eternal house in the heavens. And God made us for this purpose. He made us not just to live the rest of our lives in these earthly bodies on this planet fighting. He made us to live in eternal dwellings in the heavens. The more you know that, the more you don't strive for earthly treasures and earthly fame and earthly recognition and earthly praise. If that's what you're after, you might even get it to your desperation and disappointment. Fame is the biggest intoxicant that kills more people than any other intoxicant. You don't want it. Paul said we are unknown and yet we're well known. It's okay to be well known in heaven. You might be famous there if you're serious about the word. But you may be unknown here. You may be disowned here. You may be hated here. We have neighbors that I know people have told before they moved in. That's a pastor that lives there, a pastor and his wife that lives there. We have neighbors. They won't look in my direction. They will not look at me as I come out my house and wave at them. They will not return my greetings because somebody said, that's a pastor. You better watch out. He won't approve of you. And so you're, you know what it's like to be not, you're just disowned. You're not recognized. I'm used to that. In fact, I kind of like it. But Paul said, we are as we are unknown and yet well-known. Despised and yet when we are despised, we pray. When we're persecuted, we pray for people that persecute us. Because love simply wills the good for the people we love. So if the person we love is our enemy, we will for our enemy a conversion, don't we? Isn't that love? Love doesn't mean we have to like them or like what they do or admire what they do. It's quite the contrary most of the time. But we will the good for them. And the good for the person who hates God is conversion. Willing the conversion of them, we pray for their conversion. Does that work? I don't know. Ask the people who prayed for a guy named Saul of Tarsus. Does it work? Yeah, it works. We walk in the absolutely supernatural gift of faith and not by natural sight or by any natural human means of perception because by any means of natural human perception, we could never perceive or have a vision of the alteration of the universal and human condition that occurred in the act of God in Christ at Calvary on Skull Hill, Golgotha, outside the gates of old Jerusalem in the brutal crucifixion of a Jewish prophet named Yeshua who was accused of blasphemy and executed as a criminal with the style of execution that Rome invented in its most evil imaginations for rebellious slaves. That's God. God is no more and never more revealed than he was revealed in the crucifixion of a Jew outside of the gates of Jerusalem in AD 30, a Jew named Yeshua, whom Pilate insisted on calling the king of the Jews. That's God. There he is. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, because if I'm going to tell you what God's like, that's what God's like. And so, maybe I'll give you some things that I did have in my notes.
What are these alterations we're talking about? The alteration is permanent. It's inevitable. The coming alteration is inevitable. It's permanent as the change of situation that occurred at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That means there's no going back from the change of condition. As we said last week, we can't quit God because God won't quit us. He said to Ephraim, another name for Israel, I'm giving up on you. And then you know what he said in Hosea 11.8? How can I give up on you? That's the passion and the pathos of God. He can't give up on us. That's just the nature of his love. The coming alteration that we're expecting with the hope of salvation as our helmet is the alteration of the universal condition. It's the glorious transformation of everything. That's the glory that's about to be revealed. This coming alteration is inevitable as it is inextricably linked to the already finished alteration of the universal situation. It's eschatological because as is the case with the alteration of the universal situation, it's a last thing. An ultimate end in God's program. The coming alteration is universal because no thing and no being escapes it. Nobody escapes that so great salvation. Even though today people neglect so great a salvation and don't escape perishing in the time in between. No one and no thing and no part of time or history escapes God's great salvation ultimately. Even those who will have neglected this great salvation by putting way down on your scale of priorities the word of God, you're neglecting this great salvation, by the way. And you, no one escapes the consequences of having the word of God as a down the scale of priorities, neglecting it. But thankfully, even those who have neglected this great salvation and will not have escaped the consequences of neglecting it, which is perishing in the time in between, they will not be able to escape the final moment of this great salvation, thankfully. This alteration is permanent, as is the change of situation that occurred at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. God reconciled the world to himself in Christ. That's permanent. You can't go back on that. The world is never going to be unreconciled to God ever again, ever again. In the future, there will never be another fall of man or another rebellion of the angels. Can't happen. It's a permanent alteration. There's no going back from the change of condition that's about to happen and the eschatological alteration to come. Nor there will there be any possibility for another angelic rebellion or human fall. Because the obedience of the second representative man is a final act on behalf of humanity, as opposed to the disobedience of the first representative man, Adam, who was merely a prefiguration of the coming one, the coming Adam. 
Romans 5.14. Take that verse seriously. This alteration is radical. Another adjective to describe it. The alteration, both the change of situation and the alteration of condition that's about to happen, about to happen, impending, is radical. Because there's no aspect and no single molecule, atom or subatomic particle of material reality that will not be altered for the infinitely better. Just like there's no part of your life and thinking and soul and mind and body that is untouched by the great alteration that happened at Calvary and the other one that happens in the bodily resurrection. The alteration then is radical because there's no aspect and no single molecule, atom or subatomic particle, quark of material reality that will not be altered for the infinitely better. When Paul spoke of his relationship to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, he spoke in radical terms. I guess I'll be bold enough to say, if you can't speak in this radical term about the cross of Christ, go to another church. I'm just advising you. I've never invited anybody to come to this one. I've invited a few to leave. Paul took seriously. And he spoke radically of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. What did he say? He said, I was crucified with Christ. What part of you is untouched by crucifixion? And may it never come to be, Paul said, that I would ever pride myself in anything except for the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by whom to me the cosmos was crucified and I was crucified to the cosmos. That's radical. If you're not a radical, you don't belong in this church. In fact, you don't belong in the church because the church, the new covenant community, is a community of radicals when it comes to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not political radicals, spiritual, serious people. Yeah, we have to live in this world. Sure we do. But we're not of it. We dress this way, we talk this way, we speak this way, our dialect goes this way, because the cosmos beats the drum and tells us what to do, and tells us how to think, and tells us how to be equitable while we're the most inequitable generation that's ever lived in American history. We go by what the prince of the power of airborne spirits dictates through our little social media apps. That's what we do. And you're funny, and you're strange, and you're odd, and you're holier than thou if you don't line up to what we are lining up to because we are robotic automatons that act just like everybody else. And this is what it's like to perish without a vision. It's funny that we walk by faith and without a vision... People perish. Why? Because faith, not sight, gives you the vision. 
that saves. Sight without faith gives you the vision that perishes. I'm going to close. But what if I didn't? Our revival lasted for three weeks. What if this message did? Oh, we'd send out two or three people for food once in a while and bring in sleeping bags. How about just living outside of the church once you leave under the ministry of the Spirit? The Lord, the Spirit. I call it the Lord, the Spirit, because if it's Jesus, the Lord, up on his throne, that's one thing. But if Jesus, the Lord, the Spirit, is in my mind, in my soul, in my thinking, in my body, that's another thing. He's directing my thinking, my thoughts, my intentions, my soul, my spirit, not Baal, whose name means Lord, and he is the Lord of many just as Moloch is the Lord of millions today, just as Ishtar is the Lord of many. Because Ishtar commands not marriage, but love between objects that are incompatible to God's will. Why does Jesus insist on marital fidelity in the Sermon on the Mount? It's not because it's for a millennium in the future. It's because that's how we live now, in imitation of God in Christ, and Christ who has fidelity with his church. Matthew 5, 32. Happens to be in the Sermon on the Mount. Let Let me finish. Somebody's saying, please do. If you're saying, please finish, Let me give you a test. Let me tell you what the test is. You want me to stop preaching. You're desperate about it. You know why? Because you're perishing. You don't like this. If you're really radical in your orientation to the cross of Christ, you like to be yelled at through the word of God, as well as built up through the word of God. You like to be edified, strengthened, spoken in terms of promises, but you also like to be rebuked and reproved and corrected, don't you? Because all that keeps you from perishing in the time in between. So again, the coming alteration is inevitable, eschatological, universal, permanent, radical, and salvific. In a word, it's the product of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ and the universally reconciling and redemptive impact of the cross of Christ. We walk in this time in between. We walk. That means we live our lives, we conduct our lives, our thinking, our entire being by this absolutely supernatural gift of faith. I'm not talking about human trusting. I'm talking about a supernatural gift of faith. And not by natural sight or by any natural human means of perception. Our very lives are conducted by faith and not by sight, and we're going to get to this with a vengeance in Hebrews 11, where we talk about real heroes of history, men and women. This is the way of walking of the church, the new covenant community. The task of this community, this new covenant community, is not to change the world. God has already done that. Reconciled the world to himself, that's changing the world. We are competent servants in a ministry of life. We hold forth and hold out to the world the word of life. We beg them, acknowledge your reconciliation, for you have been reconciled. 
We are ambassadors of Christ with the word of reconciliation, representing Christ, and even better, as one guy put it, representing Christ to the world. In this time in between, remember I told you I was going to blend two core with Hebrews? Second Corinthians with Hebrews, how about this? In this time in between, one, our hope is firm. Second Corinthians 1, 7 compared to Hebrews 6, 19 to 20. Our hope is, hope is firm because it's an anchor, anchored in the region beyond the veil where Jesus is. Our hope is Jesus. Our hope is firm. First Corinthians, Second Corinthians 1, 7, Hebrews 6, 19 to 20. In this time in between, we are very bold. Why? Because we look back at a change of situation and a salvation already wrought. We look forward at a change of condition that's inevitable for the universe and the all people. That's 2 Corinthians 3.12. We are very bold. Hebrews 4.16 in comparison. 10, 19-22. 3. We don't give up. That's our third affirmation of the Telestai phalanx. We don't give up. Why? Because we've received mercy. The people of God are simply people that once did not receive mercy, but now received mercy. And because we have this ministry, a ministry of life, not death, a ministry of the spirit, not the letter, a ministry of righteousness and justification, not condemnation, a spirit of adoption and not of fear. We don't give up. 2 Corinthians 4.1 compared with Hebrews 12.1 through 11, the whole thing. We are always confident, says 2 Corinthians 5.6 compared with Hebrews 10, 35 to 39. We walk by faith, not by sight. That's the highlighted affirmation today. We walk by faith, not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, compared with Hebrews 11, 1 through 12, 3. Jesus Christ is the author of faith, the author of Abel's faith, the author of Abraham's faith, the author of Deborah's faith, the author of Sarah's faith, the author of the faith of the Maccabean martyrs. He is the author of the faith of Moses. He is the author of the faith of the generation like Caleb and Joshua that went into the land. Jesus is the author of the faith of all of these who lived before the cross. He is the author of the faith of those of us who live post-cross, pre-change of condition. What a time to be alive. I'm glad I live now. I didn't want to live when Jesus was alive in the days of his flesh. I didn't want to live in the days of Moses and those exciting times like the Ten Commandments movie. I want to live right now in this place, right at this moment, in a time in between, in realizing by faith and not by sight, and knowing Jesus Christ not after the flesh, but in the Holy Spirit, and knowing all people after Christ and being controlled by the love of Christ, which is another of the affirmations. Let me finish them. Verse, the sixth affirmation of Tetelestai Phalanx, we are completely open before God. Completely open. Because I'm completely open before God, I don't get locked into a doctrinal, dogmatic system. We're on the move always, open before God, open before God, always open. Here I am, Lord, send me. Here I am, Lord, change me. Here I am, Lord, I commit my spirit to you. I present my body to you. I commit my soul to you. I give you my heart to be taught of you. Direct my steps, direct my path, direct my day. Bless my conversation. Bless the conversations of Tetelestai Phalanx. Bless their travels. Bless their words. Bless their deeds. Bless everything about them in your grace. 
We are completely open before God. 2 Corinthians 5.11 compared with Hebrews 4.12-13. Even if you're not, you are because everyone is open to the eyes of God with whom we have to give an account in Hebrews 4.12-13. The word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit, and is a critic of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there's not one person in all creation that isn't already open, wide open, before the eyes of him with whom we must give an account. So we're already there. We're already open before him, so you might as well be open before him. Seventh affirmation, the love of Christ controls us. And when we hit that affirmation, we're going to be hitting hyperdrive, believe me. 2 Corinthians 5.14 compared with Hebrews 6.10, Hebrews 10.24, Hebrews 13.1. Eighth, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. 2 Corinthians 5.20 compared with Hebrews 12.14, follow after peace with all people without which and with sanctification without which no one will ever see the Lord. To follow after peace with all people is to offer them the message of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 20, Hebrews 12, 14. And ninth, we don't receive God's grace in vain. 2 Corinthians 6, 1 compared with Hebrews 12, 15 and 28 and Hebrews 13, 9. Tenth, we don't give any opportunity for stumbling to anyone so that the ministry be not blamed, 2 Corinthians 6, 3, for we make provision for what is honorable not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man, 2 Corinthians 8, 21, compared with Hebrews 11, 6, 12, 14, and 13, 1 to 5. So as citizens of the new Jerusalem, we love the man Christ Jesus. We're not like those who said we will not have this man rule over us. We're happy to have this man rule over us. You don't like the guy in the White House ruling over you? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ is ruling over you. You don't like Congress ruling over you? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ, the man Christ Jesus, rules over you. And we love him to rule over us. Rule over us, Lord. Reign over us. Love, reign o'er me. One good thing who said. The group. So we're becoming imitators of God, perfected in love as our Heavenly Father, living a life of love as Christ our King loved us and gave Himself for us as a slaughtered sacrifice to God and a pleasing aroma. We're serving the living God as a kingdom of priests. We're a royal priesthood under one great archpriest. And we are a heavenly colony planted in the midst of a world that's desperate. Our citizenship is already in heaven from whence we expect the deliverer and the world savior who has already altered the world's situation to come and change the world's condition. And with that change to alter our very bodies, bodies we've already presented to him that will be altered, made conformable with his own body of glory, an act that he will perform imminently. And with that act, also bring everything into subjection to himself. Father, with that expectation, we have on the helmet of salvation that recognizes the change of situation that happened at Calvary's cross and in Jesus' resurrection. And with the helmet of this hope of salvation, Father, we look forward to the wonderful, universal, radical, eschatological, inevitable alteration of our condition and the universal condition. We look forward, Father, to your Son coming from heaven, bringing salvation, and we are intensely waiting. 
We are of those not who draw back into perishing, but those who persist to the preservation of the soul. We persist in patient faith to the being saved of the soul. That's us, Father. We make that affirmation. In Jesus' name, amen.